wasn't. Many of these commentaries zeroed in on the personal parallels between the brash and unfiltered candidate and the brash and unfiltered movie character. But they often brought in the film's larger social critique, too. Although small black-and-white television sets had appeared in American living rooms only a short time before, their power was obvious to Schulberg and Kazan, Robert Rosencrantz wrote in the Huffington Post. With phenomenally prescient perspective, they imagined the potentially poisonous intersections between mass media, celebrity, and political power. The article's headline? Donald Trump, just another face in the crowd? Prescient or not, that certainly was Kazan and Schulberg's big theme. In the middle of the 20th century, the fear of totalitarianism was closely linked to a fear of mass culture and mass media. With a powerful enough microphone, intellectuals worried, a would-be Caesar could reduce a nation of individuals to a mindless mob. In the 50s, television was a particularly frequent target, and Hollywood, facing competition from the upstart medium, was often happy to echo the critique. But other parts of popular culture came in for attacks as well. Life reacted to a face in the crowd by invoking rock and roll, describing Lonesome Road's followers as frenzied bobby soxers behaving like Presley fans. In Elia Kazan, a biography, Richard Schickel reports that Kazan and Schulberg prepared for the picture by visiting the ad agencies of Madison Avenue. We got the feeling, Kazan told Schickel, that people were being manipulated in the crudest way. It is, of course, true that advertisers, electioneers, and other propagandists want to manipulate the public. But face goes further, because it essentially agrees with Rhodes about his audience. Even when his viewers rebel, they're being guided by a figure in a control booth. By switching on a microphone, Jeffries changes their programming. They hear Rhodes's cruel insults, and they turn on him instantaneously. She tosses them a dead fish, and they flap their flippers. But real people aren't passive vessels. They tune out, talk back, and otherwise act in ways that programmers can barely anticipate, let alone control. There's no room for that in face, and there's no room for it in a certain sort of critique of the Trump movement, the kind that sees his followers not as individual faces, but as one big crowd. You'll find more prescience in a superficially similar movie that winds up in a very different place. Meet John Doe, a 1941 film directed by Frank Capra and written by Robert Riskin. No, it doesn't anticipate Trump. What it anticipates is a world where media deceptions aren't just ubiquitous. They're a landscape of mutating memes outside anyone's control. Doe is, if anything, more cynical and paranoid than Face. In Capra's picture, the pop culture personality who gets co-opted by a totalitarian villain isn't even a real person. But it is ultimately more hopeful than Kazan's film as well. The story starts with a newspaper writer named Anne Mitchell learning that she's been fired. Desperate to create some buzz and keep her job, she makes up a letter from John Doe, an unemployed man who says he's going to protest the state of the world by jumping from the roof of City Hall. She prints it as her last column. The public goes wild, and before long, Mitchell is writing a whole series of columns about John Doe, his troubles, and his plans to commit suicide. The paper finds a bum willing to play the role, and soon Mitchell has him delivering radio speeches, outlining a populist philosophy of baseball, Christmas, and helping your neighbors. Listeners start forming John Doe clubs devoted to mutual aid. Everyone but politicians are free to join. D.B. Norton, the plutocrat who has purchased the paper, pays for the faux Doe to give speeches across the country, and he then arranges a convention of the John Doe clubs, where Doe will address 15,000 people in the hall and radio listeners across America. In that speech, we learn, Doe is to announce a new John Doe party and declare that the next president of the United States should be that friend of the common man, D.B. Norton. It becomes clear that Norton is hungry not just for ordinary political power, but for something approaching fascism.
In American Vision, a study of Capra's work, the critic Ray Carney describes Meet John Doe as a postmodern landscape where there are no realities outside of media events, advertising splashes, public relations blitzes, and image-building appearances. A world of fictions within fictions, without end. Mitchell and Doe may think they are in control of their environments, he writes, but they aren't. The two cons are not the masterful, poised, independent performers they fancy themselves to be, but are actually puppets in Norton's scheme to advance his political career. What he doesn't note is that Norton isn't in control either. By the end of the film, John has refused to deliver the speech. Norton has retaliated by exposing John as a fraud, the convention has ended in chaos, and John's fans have turned on him as furiously as Face's fans rebel against Lonesome Roads. And yet, the John Doe idea has escaped into the wild. In different corners of America, the clubs start to reconstitute themselves, whether or not they have an actual John Doe to lead them.